0: This is Accessing the Pipeline, a podcast for Black professionals in private equity and finance, brought to you by McGuire Woods. Join host Ruben Poucher III as he welcomes special guests offering insights into accessing capital, deal-making, accelerating portfolio optimization, and developing relationships among Black professionals in the private equity industry. Tune in to access the possibilities. Welcome
1: to Access in the Pipeline. My name is Ruben Pouchet III. I'm a partner at McGuire Woods and your host. Please join me in welcoming today's guest, Omar Simmons, who's the president of Exoterra Capital Management. Omar, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Ruben. Well, well, look, we won't waste any time. We'll jump. We'll jump right in. I think the best way to kick this thing off is uh is let's start by talking about your background, both uh, uh, as a private equity and investment professional. Uh, as well as uh, as an entrepreneur and, and and how that led you to found uh, Exultter capital.
2: Sure, so um, my personal background, I grew up in inner city Boston and uh, you know in a type of neighborhood where you know, everyone had a hustle and people had side hustles. and so it was a very entrepreneurial environment where you had to kind of go get what you wanted and it didn't necessarily fit within kind of traditional boundaries. and so uh, when I went off to college, you know, I was very interested in business, uh, spent some time in management consulting, spent most of my career in private equity, um, at larger firms from kind of 95 to 2011, 2012. Uh, and ultimately I wanted to kind of marry you know, my entrepreneurial interest, um, with a lot of the things that I learned in private equity. And so I went out and bought a business and, uh, um, ended up running that business as a CEO and as basically the private equity sponsor for some time, and then uh, uh, that was the beginning of Exaltair Capital Management. We have since went on and sold that company and made some investments in uh, uh, several others. But that's basically how the journey.
1: Awesome, awesome, and I, and I think one of one of the things that you know want to highlight for for those listening in is it, it is a unique. Uh, position to be able to look at deals and, and be in this space, having having one worked in traditional private equity uh, two also uh, having having been, you know, an entrepreneur of sports and been an operator, I, I think that there are quite a few people who just don't have all those all those perspectives when they're playing in the space. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about how that how that plays into your your sort your investment thesis and how you do things a little bit later. Um, it, you know, b- before we jump into sort of the meat of the questions, it, it'd be good, I think, to give the audience an overview uh, of, of Exalter Capital. You know, what, what, what's, what areas of focus or industries of, do you focus on? What's your investment strategy? What's the check size that you like, et cetera?
2: Yeah, so Exelter Capital, we started in uh, 2012. We focus exclusively on franchising and multi-unit businesses. Uh, basically, especially retail uh, type of opportunities in the consumer sector. We like to be the first institutional investor in a company. So by definition, that tends to be lower middle market companies with maybe 2 to $20, $25 million of EBITDA. Uh, and we view ourselves as kind of um, catalytic capital, right? So we're going to bring more than just money to the table because we're trying to professionalize and scale these companies. We are value add/slash operating oriented, um, so we don't necessarily look for the broadest portfolio. We have a small number of companies at any one time, and we spend most of our time trying to grow those companies. Um, you know, in a more traditional private equity context, you know, you do a a number of deals. You have maybe broader diversification. For us, we maybe mitigate. The, diver- the lack of diversification risk with paying a lot more attention to each company. And we don't want to run the businesses, uh, but we're in close partnership and try to be a value-added support to the uh, management teams that actually run the business on a day-to-day basis.
1: Awesome. Uh, it, you know, you, you talked just briefly about, you know, your your expansive sort of PE investment background and also your, your background as an operator what was happening in the marketplace both or as well as with you you know professionally personally back in 2012 that said you know what i'm going to i'm going to walk away from a, a a position in in a committed capital environment to go more so to this independent sponsor model where on a deal by deal basis you're looking for checks to to get the deal done yeah that's a great
2: question i think um most of my friends thought it was crazy like why would you leave <laughs> pretty pushy PE kind of context. I had raised my own uh, fund with a group of partners before I joined Windjammer Capital, which was the last uh, large PE firm I was part of. So I had some entrepreneurial experience. And I think that was important because it maybe wasn't as daunting to me to kind of go out on my own and create my own shot. Ultimately, I think there were two things going on in the marketplace at that time. Uh, One private equity was clearly becoming more institutionalized. The firm that I was with was was great. Windjammer, they're great investors. But, you know, most of the deals we were bidding on were through broad auctions. You know, the joke was kind of, we're buying everything from Harris Williams from another PE firm that already owned the company. And you felt a little bit like a stock picker um, as opposed to uh, a company builder. Um, And so... That environment is really stimulating, but I did question to what extent is it sustainable to kind of recreate value. And so I was very interested in the lower middle market where I'd spent some time. And there are aspects of the lower middle market if you want to be the first institutional investor, where I wasn't sure the committed capital model was optimal, right? Because by definition, you can raise a small amount of money. You have to do a lot of deals. You have to have a same back office as you do for a larger fund, and you're not amortizing those costs over a large fund, and can you attract the same type of talent, and you're going to be diluting your efforts with a large number of companies that are smaller and more fragile. And I just wasn't sure that all made sense, uh, given my interest in what I wanted to do. And so the thought was, well, let's test this and let's just go out and buy a company, right? Which isn't really any different than I've done my whole career. I had to deal flow, knew what I wanted to look at, understood how to underwrite structure, partner with management teams and create value. The only part that wasn't clear is would I be able to get financing in a timely manner? And I found that if you know you got good deals, you could get financing. I was fortunate that I had you know, made enough money in my private equity career that I could kind of sustain myself during those dry periods, which I think is an important consideration. The part that I didn't fully appreciate was what my role was gonna be post-close. I wanted to be more than just a stock picker. I wanted to be clearly active in the company. Um, I didn't have in my mind that I wanted to run the business. At the time, there wasn't anything really called independent sponsor. There was maybe some people that would call it fundless the sponsor. Um, we had done deals like that at Jammer to support people. But there was this clear bifurcation between are you an operator, are you an investor, are you a deal sourcer? And they all had kind of slightly different connotations and economic model. I wasn't sure where I really fit in that spectrum. I talked to people that were more traditional, kind of what they would call search funds, where they're like, well, you have to be committed to run the business. And if so, we'll give you capital. And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm committed to run the business. It depends on the business, it depends on the management team, and I don't know if that's what I'm after. I want to give the business what it needs, right? As Paul Pierce used to say, right? They give, give the game what it needs. And so I didn't know exactly what I was stepping into. Ultimately, um, when we bought uh, our first business, it did require a significant amount of management oversight. And ultimately, I did become the CEO.
1: But I'd be lying
2: if I said that was the initial
1: Yeah. Yeah, I want to go back to some I know we're not not the focus of our conversation today is not, you know, sort of emerging managers. Uh, But I think that the two there's a theme that exists if you're either, you know, you're a GP, you're emerging manager, you're raising your first fund, second fund, third fund, uh, and being an independent sponsor, which is, you know, you've got to be willing to invest not only your time and energy, but some of your own capital in order to make this make it successful. It, it, and so, you know, I, I just wanted to highlight that point for our listeners, and 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 to give you an opportunity to talk about, you know, what what is that, what is that, you know, what's that right mix of, you know, equity, debt, your own capital. What should people expect if they're going to be, you know, if they're going to be an independent sponsor, you know, trying to grow a portfolio, deal by deal, in the way ways in which you've done?
2: Yeah, look, I think it is a super important question, particularly important for people of African descent and and people of color, right? Because we don't often have the the rich uncle, as I call it, right? Just hanging around, been there, done that, maybe can give you some capital. Um, For me, I thought of my entrepreneurial pursuits around two kind of dimensions. The first is, you know, when do I know enough to to be able to take that risk? And uh, second, when and how to finance that risk. And uh, the first entrepreneurial uh, leap I made was after a couple years of business school when I was at a firm called Macau and when I left. And we started uh, mainly black and brown partners. We started a uh, small private P firm, about $122 million called Reliant Equity Investors. Um, There, I had the skill set and the energy to do it didn't have the capital, but my partners could help me. Uh, some of them were older. And that was kind of the trade, right? They could help finance our our period where we didn't have enough management fee to, to pay the bills. Uh, I still had to pay, take a pretty significant pay cut to take that risk, but at least I could, I could eat, right? And my wife worked at the time. Three kids later, my wife's at home, kids are in private school. <laughs> It was a completely different equation. My burn rate was very different. My lifestyle was very different. And so I had to have enough money in the bank to say, hey, I can I can do this without really changing their lifestyle. Um, not only was I not going to make any money, kind of had to support a small team. And I also didn't... Um, it wasn't a traditional path. They didn't know exactly when you were going to close a deal and then how much money you were going to have to put in a deal. And so I think a lot of the capital providers are sensitive to, you know, you may not have as much money in your first deal or whatever. For me, given my background and just given my orientation, you know, we put real money in that first deal. And so when you add it all up, you know, there's the opportunity cost of not making any loot. And then you had to put in more money. And then depending upon how you're going to source and process deals, you had to kind of support resources around you. And I think do that in a way where you weren't single-threaded is is wise. And so I do think that means there are certain windows of opportunity to take these entrepreneurial risks. And I, I encourage people, again, particularly people of color, to think long and hard about your personal balance sheet, about your family, about your husband or wife, and make sure everybody can absorb that risk because it can be extraordinarily stressful time.
1: Yeah. I look, I, I appreciate the the transparency on that piece. I think is, you know, as people, um, one of the things that's at sort of the core of this initiative is trying to encourage more people to get into space, uh, encourage people to take, you know, some of these risks, understanding that there is a, a likelihood of success on the other side of it, but you do have to, you know, you have to be prepared for, when will that success come? Is that success through portfolio optimization or is that success through an exit, you know, three years, five years, seven years down the road. And if that's the case, you know, that, that check, you know, may, may not come in the way that you anticipated it uh, for a little bit of time. So you got to have something to sustain you in the middle. So, so appreciate that, that, uh, that transparency there it, it, in that same vein, you know, it, you know, having to take a look at your personal balance sheet, thinking about what other things you have going on. I, I would imagine you're still maybe particular about, you know, who who you take capital from, when, when where and why. Uh, what are some of the table stakes when you're thinking about who's going to be a capital provider, be it, you know, be it debt, be it equity, whatever it is. Uh, I imagine you've got sort of a thesis around that. Would you mind sharing that with us?
2: Yeah. Look again. It's it's extraordinarily important. I think when we were when my, when I was in more traditional committed funds, we still thought a lot about what's the nature of our debt partners, for example, right? Because no matter what the spreadsheet says, deals don't go straight up. Um, there's usually ups and downs, and if you hit an air pocket, you want to know you have a good partner. that's not going to freak out or pull the plug. That said. It's even more important to have a good partner when you're an independent partner, independent sponsor. You know, we've had deals where groups of flake, post-LOI, and, you know, you got busted deal risk. You got, well, the deal closed because you had to introduce them to the seller. The seller's like, well, what, what happened to this other group? And so for me, there are a couple of really important considerations. Um, one, does the deal fit the, I don't know, ethos of the, of the partner that you're partnering with, right? Like no matter what type of investor you are, and even the most flexible groups, everyone has to have a strike zone, implicitly or explicitly, type of size, type of risk they like to underwrite, type of people they like to work with, because that's just how institutions and people are, right? You get comfortable in a certain space. And so I try to understand, does this really fit what they do? Right, where they're comfortable, because if someone's a little bit on the outside corner and they're a little uncomfortable, and they learn something in diligence or something happens post close, they may not react in a way that's healthy for the business, or for the transaction. I think the second thing is, are they, you know, high integrity people I can trust? Right. Because the most important thing I'm going to be risking is my reputation and my time and my money. Um, and so uh, things happen. There's no way to predict every twist and turn in a deal or a life of a deal. But if there's a kind of character alignment or integrity, you can talk about it. You can work through it as a trust level to say, you know, yeah. even if you don't disagree agree on everything, there's a way to work through it. And the last thing is, you know, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but maybe credibility, certainty of clothes, certainty of of, of being a good partner post-close. And the good thing now is because there are more transactions in the independent sponsor space, and because there are more capital providers that are consistently into space, you can check each other out, right? Moreover, the smart groups know that their reputations follow them. And so if they care about their reputation, they'll do the right things more time. Right? And, and I think that's what you want because you're in an incredibly vulnerable period um, as a sponsor if you get the wrong part. I've seen independent sponsors on the path of creating value, and they would say that their partner, uh, just because they weren't aligned, and that misalignment ended up destroying value. Right? One wants to exit, another one doesn't. One wants to fire the CEO, another one doesn't. Right? And how do you create an alignment? so that you're both looking at the same things and have the same framework to make decisions. You try to do your best to kind of make those decisions up front. I've been really, really fortunate that everyone we've partnered with has been great, and uh, and we've been through a lot of difficult situations and difficult conversations, but we feel like that's been extraordinarily
1: fortunate. What's that alignment look like beyond the capital providers when you're thinking about, you know, potentially bringing in uh, an investment banker or, or what law firms you align with, because as you mentioned, with these independent sponsor deals, the, the certainty to close, you know, it, it, I think is is it, been is ratcheted down just a little bit from sort of traditional strategic M and A transactions. And so, you got to be prepared for, you know, you know, how to deal with busted deal fees, uh, including you know QOVs you know, uh, and and legal spend. what have been some ways that you've you've mitigated. Um, some of the risks that, that can happen uh, if you've got a busted deal?
2: Yeah, so a couple of things. I think the first is I was um, I'm fortunate. I, I worked in these firms. I think I know how they think, and I think I understand their constraints and what's important to them. And so I think that helps me maybe get to the heart of the matter a little quick quicker. The second is I just ask for alignment, right? So, like, we asked them to pick up some of the busted deal fees, Um, Some firms are better able to do that than others. But we explain to people, it's not just the money. It's I don't want you window shopping, right? (laughs) If anyone can say, yeah, I love this deal. It's under L O I. It looks great. It's like, no, if you walk, I want you to feel a similar amount of pain to me. And you still won't feel the same amount of pain because you're going to absorb it in some big institution. It's my personal balance sheet with a small team. And so that... um, That's one of the first places I I try to get some alignment. The second is, because my background is more in control buyouts, we kind of view it as it's our job to run the whole deal. And um, so we will pick um, our service providers for the most part. Now, it doesn't mean we're not open-minded if someone has a specific thing, but we can't, unless they're going to commit the capital up front, They can't dictate all the service providers. Um, And so we have had the good fortune of working with, um, you know, some different service providers at different stages of the deal. And what we try to do is make sure there's alignment with with the capital partner, with who they are, their rates and their style. The quality, the reputation, and those things. And that's part of signing kind of exclusive term sheet, right? We had one group at one point was like, Yeah, QVs are fine, but every deal we do has to have an audit. We're like, Okay, I I hear you. Audits cost a lot of money, they take a lot of time. You know, we ended up saying, We don't love them, but if we do it, you're going to pay for it. (laughs) And then we ended up saying, Well, can't just isolate that one so you'll pay for part of it. But we, we ended up working it out such that again there was some shared shared risk on that. And they brought in a very particular group that they wanted to have in for every one of their audits. And so I think we try to mitigate that and we try to be upfront with, you know, if we were doing a deal together, you know, hopefully we would develop a, a long term relationship and partnership so that You know, things may happen in a particular deal, but if we're going to be in this business, there'll be other opportunities to create fees for both sides. And uh, maybe some of that will roll over or something. And so I think for us, the idea of kind of long term partnership is one way to mitigate that um, so that everyone that we deal with understands that, you know, we're going to make sure you're not left holding the bag but we might need some flexibility here so we can all share a little bit of risk.
1: Yeah. I, and I, I think as, as a firm, you know, that, that's our approach, right? Is we've, we're committed to the independent sponsor space and recognize that, you know, when you're partnering and you're developing a long-term partnership with someone, one of the things you don't want to do is I don't want you to feel like you got to do this deal uh, because you've got, you know, whatever legal number of legal fees hanging over your head, and, and so you know beyond whatever discussions need to happen with the potential buyer or with you as the buyer seller and in your in some of the other fees you incurred and we're, we're going to have a conversation about well maybe we could we can park some fees here and you know if we you know you get ready to do another deal down down the road or even a series of deals that we can find some ways to um some creative ways to kind of you know spread the spread the love across the the entire you know the entirety of the relationship and i think that's Something that if you're going to be a service provider in the space, you really got to be, really, really got to be uniquely aware of, and and, and and be intentional about making sure your client knows that um, uh, heading into the deal. So, uh, all, all, all good stuff. Now, the sort of the meat and potatoes of what I wanted to talk to you about today um, is you you recently uh, had a had an exit and uh, wanted to you know sort of talk through um, the, the the portfolio company exit and. Could, could you just, you know, to start us off, give us a little bit of background on that transaction and, and, and how it how it came about?
2: Yeah, so our first deal was uh, a Planet Fitness franchise. Planet Fitness is the market leading health club fitness provider um, in the country. At the time, we did this deal in 2012. You know, not many people knew about Planet Fitness. I hadn't heard. Of I had in my past invested successfully in a business called 24 hour fitness. When I was at Macau and DeLuz, We made about 11 times our money. So I knew a little bit of enough to be dangerous. Uh, and this particular deal really fit our strike zone. It was about five, five and a half EBITDA. It was fundamentally sound. It needed some help managerially. It was under managed and um, it was, it was pretty steady despite, you know, being undermanaged, it couldn't grow, or they, management hadn't figured out a way to grow it, and they were willing to roll over fifteen percent of the sellers were up uh, there um, into the new co. And um, we basically, you know, could afford it, right? Because it was a little bit of a, it was a hairy complex transaction. So we closed the deal. I put in uh, some money. We brought in a group called Brightwood Capital. That did the debt and the equity? Uh, another African American owned group. Uh, they were really more of a debt oriented SPIC, and uh, I was the executive chairman at close, um, which basically meant, you know, I was the neck that could be strangled. Right? I was holding myself. I'm accountable because it didn't have a traditional CEO. I pretty quickly realized it needed more than an executive chairman. It needed a CEO. I became the CEO. One of my colleagues, who's now our director, uh, basically became the CFO. Um, and some of our um, kind of operating affiliates, you know, helped out. They were like one of the CLO, and, and we kind of built in the team. We ran the business for a couple of years, right? So phase one of Planet Fitness was we were clearly the sponsor, right? We had an investment thesis, a buy and build strategy, and we had to kind of fix the business, grow the business, and we grew the number of units from like 15 to 50 and EBITDA from like 5 to 20 pretty quickly, a couple of years. Then we started bringing in a more traditional management team that was better than we were. And uh, at that point, Brightwood was getting ready to raise another fund. And they were like, hey, you know, this has been a good deal for us. We are going to kind of book this, so we can sell, we can raise more money. We said, well, we just got this new management team, got these new growth initiatives, why don't we just buy you out? So we raised a small kind of institutional fund that was more of a special purpose vehicle to hold that point of fitness asset, maybe do 100 you And um, they stayed in the debt and kept a little bit of the equity, but they earned a really nice return. And we were kind of, you know, doing a lot more or less the same thing we did, but as a more traditional sponsor, with a little bit more equity because we never had patient equity capital. We were disproportionately dependent on debt that allowed us to kind of grow a little more aggressively. And so we went from, you know, I don't know about 50, 60 units to over a hundred. Um, and then we got to 2012 and candidly we were thinking about selling, we we're going to right, run the process and fitness clubs in 2020, um, you know, got hit by COVID. Right. And so, Things changed, right? You know, from interviewing bankers to uh, spending all my time with landlords and lenders and governors and mayors (laughs) uh, trying to survive, right? I mean, it was all hands on deck. We had to lay off 1,500 employees. And and so it was a really challenging time. Um, But we kind of had those two chapters, right? Chapter one was a little bit more operationally. And sponsor-oriented, Chapter 2 was a little less operational, but still pretty hands-on. Uh, more traditional role. We had a good CEO, good management team. Um, and then we had this kind of extraordinary event during COVID. make a really long story short, we got through that period. I think we got through it stronger, candidly. Um, and actually kind of started shifting our thinking and realized we're going to survive. And we may even thrive. 20% of our competitors are dying or gone. Maybe 25% are going to go. Uh, maybe it's surprising uh, opportunities here from an acquisition perspective. There are probably sites and other things that are available that aren't, wouldn't ordinarily be available. Uh, we worked out something with our lenders, which happened to be Brightwood and some other groups um, that had joined in. But they at least had some history, and we had some history and credibility with them. It's kind of said, Look, we're going to put our foot on the pedal here, and let's both think offensively and not just defensively. And this was kind of really early 2021. When the vaccine had just come out. And so we built a pipeline, and we were getting ready to go play offense. And uh, more luck than skill, a couple of groups started knocking on our doors saying, You know, would you transact? And initially, I was like, I'm not even talking. I don't have time to play these games. You're not going to buy me for 50 cents on a dollar. We're not desperate. You know, we, we, we have a plan. We have a capital structure to allow us to endure. Um, some groups were like, no, no, we're not trying to buy you on the cheap. But in my mind, our EBITDA was half as much as what it normally is because we had all these closures and all this mess in there. Um, and I couldn't take a management team that was really focused on – creating value that had just come through and hadn't even finished getting through this really difficult, tumultuous period and distract them with a transaction and even make them think that it was possible to get out early because I had kind of been very consistent saying it's going to take two or three years for us to build back up to where we were. Ultimately, we had a number of groups that were kind of interested and then I was bidding on some other deals that were in similar situations and people were looking through the the pandemic affected even though, right? They're making adjustments. They kind of could understand, well, if you we weren't closed, this is what you would make. Those deals were getting financed. I don't know, it's making like, smaller than our deal. And so I was like, well, if those deals are getting financed, maybe my deal could get financed. And if my deal could get financed, maybe it is working. I'm talking to some So we talked to three of them and didn't hire a bank. We basically became the investment banker. And, you know, we're pretty candid. Like, this is what it's going to take for us to engage this price, we'll talk. Um, and long story short, one group a private equity firm, ended up buying uh, the controlling interest. Uh, we did, myself personally, and some of the other bipartisan like, uh, i worked with did uh, roll over some of our personal money. But the fund got out of hold, and they did very well despite COVID. Um, and so from beginning in, I think uh, if you were an initial investor, you made well over 12 times your right? uh, money. But each second you know, the way also uh, made, some value, made a great return. It was great for our management team and great for the people that had uh, been a part of it. Uh, but it wasn't straight up, you know, it was just a lot of down.
1: Yeah, it, and so so going through that that process, um, and, and having a you know having a banker lead it i I know that you know and and no no disrespect to all the to all the bankers uh, out in the industry. I mean those guys drive really, really, really hard and 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 they're all they're looking to get a deal done for obvious reasons. you know how are you able to sort of manage the process and 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 get to the right buyer uh, from 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 your seat because i I would imagine that the right buyer was something beyond just check size. Uh, given that you had just brought on a management team and you were thinking about potentially rolling over some of your own money into the deal. So so, so viability post-close is is, is is a pretty important thing to you, at, at least in, in part at, at this point. And so just curious, you know, how how you sort of drove that process and what the right buyer in your mind looked like.
2: Yeah. So the three groups groups we engaged in all kind of knocked on our door. But we had been
1: around the
2: M&A in the space long enough that we knew what a right buyer looked like. So you could recognize it when you see it. One was a family office, uh, one was kind of a strategic, one was a private equity firm. And all of them had a thesis as to why it made sense for them. Part of what we were trying to assess is, did it really make sense for them? Could they hit the price that made sense? And were they going to deliver the certainty of clothes that made it worth us taking the risks to go down this road, right? Because in normal times, you maybe can play these games. We were still in very fragile times, right? Like, so wasting a lot of time and money and energy wasn't something we were interested in. Our best mitigate, candidly, if we had built a business that we were prepared to hold. And, and rather than hire a bank, we could credibly tell the group look, if we engage, we know this is a hairy story. We're going to tell you what we were willing to engage at, but you're going to have time and have an exclusive look to do your work. And so we customize the process that would kind of mitigate the risk and share the risk around these these parties. And so I think that in some ways increased the probability of success as opposed to more traditional auction where we just you know hire a bunch of people because – I've been on both sides of that. If I'm in an auction, I'm like, well, there's all this hair and I'm going to spend all this time and I don't know what the price is. I don't even know if this is going to be a good use of time. It's a low return on, I'm not going to spend time on it as opposed to you really like this space. We're going to be very transparent about what we have and what we're willing to do. And if you're willing to be in that neighborhood, then we can can talk and you got a real legitimate shot, one in three or whatever it is to, to take this off the table. And so that's, what we did to your point about uh, was it more than just the traditional considerations? I mean, for us, we didn't have to roll over um, if we sold with one of these groups, but I think we kind of wanted to, and we were open to it. Right. And for some people that's a, you know, that's a signal, right. But we basically felt like this is a business that had enduring. And so, being able to signal, like, yeah, we're open to rollover, I think was important to both sides, and the partnership thing becomes more important. I also was effectively a founder, right? So me and my team, we felt like we built this team. We had, we literally handpicked every management team member, and they had invested a lot of their time. It was really depending on this for their own wealth creation. You know, they hadn't been able to take money out much, and had had a wealth uh, a wealth event, so. Making sure they were going to be in good hands was a consideration and making sure we were partnering with somebody that we felt could take the business to another chapter and another level. And we felt like we really found that with this this group, Towerbrook. You know, they were honest. They were trustworthy. They uh, looked like they'd be really good partners. They were smart. And we thought they could be value-added. And uh, I think you know, I'm still on the board of that business. I think they've kind of proven to do all those
1: things. Yeah, you know, I, I think about some of, some of the things you just said about uh, you know having a business that you spend a, a great deal of time getting getting to a really good spot. Then you've got the pandemic, which for you know as you mentioned for for the you know for sort of wellness business where you 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 can't. It's harder to come up with ways to make money virtually when when really you got to have people in the building. Uh, using the equipment taking taking advantage of the ancillary services you provide and so so now you're you're getting ready to exit this business and sell it, and you're in a really in a different position than a lot of people who are at, at that exit inflection point where their balance sheet their financials are 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 as robust as they've ever been and 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 then you know you've got yours where look we were here, but now we're here, and here's the reason, and obviously people were willing to 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 get creative in looking through that. But 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 now I think we've we've sort of through that we we found ourselves in really good times in the deal space, and now as we 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 peel through the first quarter of twenty twenty three, we're almost back at another uh, you know sort of another inflection point where you know debt costs a lot of money, uh, we've got banks on the brink of failure, folks are a little bit more skittish to to do deals, you know are there any sort of lessons learned from that experience that you think are going to be applicable, uh, as we, as we continue to press through, uh, what, what might be what many are predicting to be a little bit of a, of a, of a difficult time, uh, in 2023.
2: Yeah. I spent a lot of time on this with my team and my portfolio company CEOs. You know, I'm a little older, man. I've been in the game a while. I've seen a lot of cycles, right? I mean, I got in this business in 1995, so I remember, you know, 2001, 2008, COVID. You know, a lot of people haven't invested through, particularly at a senior level, a lot of cycles. Um, Things can change. Things will change. And I do think we're in a particularly volatile or risky period right now. And I think the world recognizes that. To your point, it creates a gap, right? There's higher risk. Buyers are gonna say, I gotta get compensated for that risk. And so I need a lower price. Because <laughs> things may not go work. Sellers are like, what you talking about? My boy last year just sold it, you know, nine times. Like, why well, is it why is it still nine times? You know, and you're like, Well, all the reasons you outlined, you know, debt's higher, risk premiums higher. But they're like, whatever, man, like I've been working on this my whole life. Why would I take a discount? Right. And so it creates a, a disconnect to get things done. Uh, I think for us, uh, again, we're very focused on, you know, creating value, making the pie bigger uh, for all people involved, all the parties, all the stakeholders. And so. We tend not to be in super aggressive auctions, but we, you know, we'll participate in them certainly when we have an angle and it fits our our, uh, our strategy. But we try to be in situations where uh, one plus one equals more than two, right? That means that if we're buying, you know, a business, hopefully they view us as value add. If they view us as value add, we will, uh, we almost require that there's some role some sort of skin in the game. Maybe it's a seller note or something. But that means that that second bite is valuable in some way, right? It's, 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 and so that, that's a currency that you can play with to bridge valuation gaps, either explicitly through ratchets or implicitly through, you know, if we add some value, you'll get dollars and you'll get some shares, and that share should be worth a lot of money in the future that you leave to your kids or, or keep yourself. Uh, second thing is we have used earnouts. Uh, the last three deals will have an earnout component to them. Uh, we don't love earnouts, but we've been fortunate that we've been able to kind of structure earnouts to create good alignment, right? So when these unexpected things happen, sometimes it was because of COVID, right? Sometimes it was because of things you couldn't predict. But a lot of times what we found is like, look, we both can acknowledge this as a risk. You may not know how it's going to turn out. You may not know who's going to pay for it. But if I can give you enough cash that you can feel comfortable, we're going to have to share this risk here going forward, right? And since you think there's no risk, you shouldn't be scared to hand to kick a little bit of it yourself. <laughs> and um, if they're not willing to do that, then maybe that's not the right deal, right? And so um, the last thing I would say is, um, can, can you focus in areas where, you know, for us, Again, it's it's a little bit of a more uh, limited set of uh, kind of competitors, right? So, are you focusing in areas where it's more of a one-on-one type of situation or one-on-two than it is, you know, a thousand people bidding on a deal? And I think that just the dynamics change because then you can really have real conversations as opposed to, you know, all right, management, team's over. management meeting's over, you have to go home and tell me your best bid, right? Because you don't, we don't know enough and they don't know enough. And so I think the ability to bridge these valuation gaps are partly relational and partly, again, I go like to the word partnership, right? Can you kind of find a way to get something done? If the answer is no, that's okay, right? But at least you can spend the time to explore, can it work? And you can't get those customized solutions in really limited rigid processes
1: yeah well um, I, I agree, agree with every, with all those points uh, I appreciate you sharing a little bit about um, about that transaction and I, I want to pivot one more time here and and kind of talk a little bit about the um you know sort of the black professional pri- and private equity and finance ecosystem, but also that sub ecosystem uh of independent sponsors. Yeah, I, I think you know we at McGuire Woods. I mean, we're we're as a firm, particularly focused on the independent sponsor space. I don't I don't I don't know another firm that does more deals in that space than we do. And um, uh, you know, shameless plug. Our, our we you know we we have a huge independent sponsor conference in in Dallas every year. That um, I mean, we've 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 outgrown you know our our host hotel and are are moving it to a new space. And we'll probably have thirteen hundred people you know at our at our next one. It will be a mix of you know, capital providers and, and 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 independent sponsors and and lenders and and, and, and so forth. So, uh, but 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 kind of drilling down on, the, on on the black folks in that space, I, I I can only imagine that you've experienced some some things, some challenges that are unique to the black experience in the independent sponsor space. And in you know, obviously we're, we don't want to name names or, or, or make anybody look bad, but 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 interested in hearing you know some of the themes that are developed. Uh, that that you've sort of noticed over your time in the space, and what are some of the mitigation strategies that you've you know you've learned, developed, and deployed over the course of your career uh, to overcome sort of that gap between you know people say they want to do do business equally, fairly across the spectrum of people that play in the space. but then the system doesn't necessarily support uh, the, the, the that 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 mantra that you know, and I know people mean it. But at the same time, the system's not necessarily set up for folks that look like you and I uh, to have some of the same advantages that our counterparts do. And so just just curious if you drop a couple nuggets on us on, on, on what you've seen and, and how you've overcome those things.
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I appreciate having a, a venue to even talk about it. Right. Because it's not always easy to, to, to address. Look, I, I got in the game at like 95 when I was in private equity. I can count the number of black people in the game in like one hand. It was just really small. In fact, I used to look for proxies. Like, do they have women? Do they have Jewish people? Maybe Catholic people. Right. Like you just look for any semblance of diversity in the, in the private equity game, um, to say, okay, there's some open mindedness here. And, you know, I don't know. It, it was always interesting and subtle. Right. I mean, it, I remember my first blue well really like I, said, I won't name any names and, and i ended up loving this guy who's my best one of my best bosses ever but I remember in the middle of the interview he basically said straight up like you know we never hired any black person before like i was like well okay i never worked any place that you know that did right like so what's next right like but i appreciate what well, he probably you know probably was against hr's policy or something but like i really appreciated his candor being direct right um Because I think what he's basically saying is, you know, we may make mistakes. (laughs) You know, can you handle that? And I was basically like, look, I'm good. Like I I don't expect perfection here. I just want an opportunity. Um, I think things have gotten a lot better as far as representation. I think it's still really hard to be a player, like, you know, a senior partner at these firms. But I do think the talent is in the pipeline and we're a very talented folk. And so it will, it will happen um, just because of hopefully competitive pressures. But I, I think for me, the three biggest barriers have been like lack of cultural capital, right? Like, so some of this can be just, and I'm always trying to be careful. Like I can think of it, one of my gigs, one of my P. firms, I was pretty senior and I remember coming in, I thought I was going to be responsible for a particular territory. And then some other guy that had been there was like, Yeah, you don't really want that territory. You want this other territory. So we're going to switch. I was kind of like, Why do you want it if it's so okay, great, right? He's like, You don't mind, do you? I'm like, Two yeah, days in the job. Like, I have no logical way to say what territory is better or not. And even if I did, I'm not going to come off like a team player. So I was kind of in a bind, right? Like, I can't demand that. But I was like, I don't know if I want to switch territory. It made sense for me since I lived in this particular area to run that territory. So ends up that you know I think the senior guy just didn't want any trouble. He was like, "Yeah, you don't care, right?" I was like, "I kind of do care, but do whatever you want to do, right?" Like I'm the team player. He's like, "All right, you'll just switch." Ended up it did put me at a career disadvantage because that other territory was just more fruitful and lucrative, and you know, which was kind of predictable, right? Was that because I was Black? I don't know. I doubt it, right? But it's certainly possible, right? But at the cultural capital of, you know, me not having uh, a lot of people i kind to talk to about how to deal with this, and I knew I was the only Black or Brown person around in that context. Like, it, it can make me double-clutch a little bit. It can make... Dealing with all these kind of subtle political structural issues a little more difficult, particularly when I talk about the second barrier, which is basically to be in a partnership model means that you not only have to be good at what you do, but you have to get along. You have to connect. You got to feel like kin. And I remember my first few jobs in PE, like I didn't fox hunt. I didn't golf. I didn't... <laughs> I didn't want to kick it with them on the weekends, right? Like I was doing a completely different set of stuff. <laughs> we were going to complete after work, we were going to completely different areas. So I didn't have that lubricant, right? To be like, oh, right? Like, which is a which counteracts a lot of things, right? Now, maybe I moved a little bit, but I would argue those firms have to move a little bit, right? Because back then the partnership groups and they're getting a little better, but i tell you, it was like 99% homogeneous, right? They all went to a good undergrad school, maybe top 10, right? They all did some investment banking, usually an MA from you from know, a handful of post-bracket firms. They all went to HBS or Stanford, and they expanded a little bit to from the top two to maybe the top. Then they were in PE, and they are all white men, and they all lived in particular circles, right? Extraordinarily homogeneous. Is it a little better? Yeah. But that's still the weight of it, right? And so that means it's a certain lived experience. There's a certain lens through which they look at the world. There's a certain lifestyle. And so the things that I was dealing with for fun or for challenges, which is different, right? And so that means it was harder to connect at that deeper level, which is really important if you're saying, you're going to be my partner, right? Not just an employee, but a partner. I think the third thing and the last maybe thing, and it's been a little bit of a challenge, is being able to bring all of myself to work. Right? Some of this was my own evolution, right? How do I do that? How much of that do I do? What's appropriate? Am I going to scare them off, right? And, uh, and again, it's easy for me to say now, but like, I was like, I don't care. Right? Like, I had to get to a point where like, I had to learn to be my best self, right? And, um, um, and if it worked, great. If it didn't, right? because it's, it's going to be hard in a really competitive business, in a competitive industry, to win playing someone else's game. And so, you know, at our firm, and I wouldn't even say it's conscious, but we work really hard to get a diverse set of people. You know, we have super talented people that have high integrity and really high working and are smarter than me. And I think that allows us to make better decisions and it allows us to be more tolerant um, and see different things. And I don't know if we have to work that consciously at it but it just comes from an underlying philosophy of bring all of yourself to the business, right? Because that's how you'll be special. That's how you'll be distinct. And that's how we'll get the best thinking. Again, we have, you know, I'm Black, we have people from uh, you know, different countries and different people of color. And I think you know, we want to do better in, in, in that regard. And we try to encourage our management teams to do better in that regard. And we really are proactive about it. It's not always easy, but I think it starts with that sensitivity around, can you bring all, do you really want to see all of somebody or do you want to see them as a means to an end or a small limited lens of who they are? And I think you're underestimating the power of, you know, the talent that different perspectives can bring.
1: appreciate the, the candor there. And I, you know, I think, there are a lot of parallels between private equity and big law. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 won't, I, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but, you know, somewhere in that, you know, and I'm probably being generous, that two to five percent range is what, you know, black lawyers make up big law. And the number gets smaller as we parse out for, for gender uh, at the partnership partnership level. And and so it's a, you know, it's a rarity to, you know, to, to, to look across the, the aisle and, you know, and see someone that looks like you sitting in a partner seat, uh, you know, leading deals uh, or, or being a thought leader in this space. And so, I you know, it, and, and it's not that, you know, I don't think that any of us want a homogenous uh, environment, but we want one where, uh, again, like you said, you can bring your whole self to the table and, and you can, you can, you can use that to, to harness and, harness harness our differences and create value across the spectrum of uh of diversity in the workplace and, and in this in this particular industry. And yeah, we're we're getting better on both sides, both both legal and, and PE. And um I, I think this initiative and, and having folks like you on this podcast is gonna be uh be be a catalyst for for that type of change. Um a a couple more questions in the space and then we'll 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 close out. But but, but in that same vein, you, you talk about being able to bring your entire self to, 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 to the workplace. And as you are looking for capital providers, sourcing deals, uh, leading teams, what are some of the misconceptions that, that folks have about black independent sponsors uh, as, the, as they're in the marketplace, either looking to buy or sell something?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so much of what we do is around credibility right? Because you pretty quickly got to assess if this is a good use of time, money, energy, et cetera. And being an independent sponsor, in general, you lose credibility, right? If I was working at Windjammer or KKR or Summit Partners, um, your card gives you a degree of credibility. Your institutional capital gives you a certain credibility. And so by not having that, um, and by being a person of color, particularly being a black person, right? Because we have historically been at the lowest end of the socioeconomic standpoint. I mean, there's no question about kind of the wealth gap and how persistent that has been. And uh, we're not the group that people think of as, you know, smart. They may think of as athletic or whatever. But whatever bias they have, it's not like, oh, let me let this dude run my money, right? Uh, that's not first thing that comes to mind and so I'm sure it's a little bit of a disadvantage because we all have unconscious bias and uh, to ignore that would be you know, foolish I think there are ways to mitigate you know that by just being conscious that people have bias and you have to kind of establish credibility right however you can uh, because no one would become an independent sponsor well, I won't say no one in general, because of the risk that you have to absorb, you've got to be pretty confident, pretty crazy, or some combination thereof, right? So, being able to kind of communicate to the world why you're confident, crazy, and you know, because you're betting on yourself, right? The thing I like most about it is, and why I think it's inherently a more entrepreneurial pursuit than being in a more traditional fund, is this perfect alignment, right? Like, you don't make money unless your investors make money, unless your management team make money, there is no leakage, right? There's no, like, you can be in a big fund and maybe this deal doesn't work or maybe the management fees cover you or whatever. That just doesn't work here, right? And so there's a reason you're doing it. And if you're good and you're confident and you're confident, it's got to kind of get that energy out into the world so it becomes contagious. And uh, think about how best to maybe... Frame it, but there's got to be some reason you and your loved ones think
1: that this is a good use of your time. No, I I appreciate that. You know, what what are some things that we can do to encourage more folks like you to 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 look at this space as a viable option? And it's not to say we just have you know you know tons of people in more the you know traditional committed capital vintage fund type of space, but but at the same time, and we we're trying to spread the talent across the, across the continuum. What, how do we, how do we best do that? What are, what are some, what are some things that you've done to encourage, you know, uh, others to, to look at the space or even, you know, providing, you know, Hey man, I, I can't, I can't spend all the money. Here's a list of capital providers that might, might work for you. You know, what, what, what are some of those things at the top of your list?
2: Yeah, look, so there's some things yeah, at a personal level, again, Wealth creation, particularly around people of color and black folk in particular, is really important to me and my family. So my wife and I are um, kind of starting, are going to support investing in, lack of a better word, kind of a, a nonprofit initiative that's going to try to create more entrepreneurs of color to own franchises. Right? So we've been in the franchise business for a long time. We see a lot of people work and consume <laughs> uh Food and things like that at franchises. We're saying, you know, you have the ability to own and run these things. Part of it's a mindset shift. I think similarly in private equity. I think more of us are going into private equity, and that's great. And more of us are in the private equity ecosystem, which is great. I think more of us need to think about how to own the means of production and not just work for people. Right? It's a completely different mindset. And it has no downside because if you think about how to own something, some of the pitfalls we talked about when you're working for somebody, you're just not as afraid. You be your, you'll be your best self because you're like you know if they don't treat me right, I have an independent skill set that is portable, right? I work for whatever, Ruben Inc., and I can go out and do this myself or take it to some other firm or or whatever. And I think it makes you a much better professional. I think third is you know opening up, you know going to the, the business schools and podcasts like this are extraordinary, but letting people know there's so much more than the traditional path, right? So for me, the traditional path was never quite as attractive. That's why I kind of jumped off. It's like, well, let me start my own fund. And uh, then it was like, well, let me jump off, and go back to a very traditional fund, but use that as maybe a learning laboratory to then go out and buy my own company or, do other deals. And there's so many different ways to kind of play this private equity thing. But I do think the idea of controlling your own destiny is more rewarding than people might appreciate. And I think a lot of us can get, I don't know, subdued or uh, uh, get too used to the trappings of certainty, right? I got a nice check. I got a nice life. I got a nice car, And I suspect when you look back, you know, earlier in your career, that wasn't the reason you got in the game, right? You wanted to create something, you wanted to to contribute, you wanted to uh, have an impact, not be a cog in a wheel. And um, the last thing, it can be just way more lucrative and way more fun and way more um, give you an opportunity to have a canvas to paint on, right? To leave your fingerprints, uh, to leave a legacy, because it's really, really rewarding to feel unconstrained and empowered, right? Like you can choose how to spend your time and how to design your life and your professional career. It's harder, um, at least at certain points, maybe early on. But from my experience, it's been way more rewarding than trying to do the things that you think other people will value so you can be rewarded by them and get promoted by them. As opposed to you doing what creates value, you doing what creates wealth, you doing what makes a lasting impact on the communities you're trying to serve or people you're trying to work for. Um, It's a completely different mindset. And I think more of us need to recognize how talented and gifted we are. And we're all blessed. Don't be afraid to use it. Take a shot. First thing that happens, don't work out, you go work back for the man, right? And then you go back out and think, do it again, right? There's no downside, right? We we can get this done.
1: Yeah, yeah, great, 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 great advice. Um, well, we're, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here. But usually at the end of these, I try to do something a little bit fun that that allow our listeners to get to know you a little bit better, but also give them a couple of things um, in addition to you know sort of the the, the private equity substance that they got from our earlier conversation, but some things that they can do to enrich themselves profe- as, as professionals. And so uh, I just got, you know, three quick questions, rapid fire. Recommend one book that's been transformational for your career. Uh, the Bible,
2: same thing. Self-explanatory, read it. you'll know. Awesome, awesome.
1: And then, and I, and I think maybe we've already kind of gotten that a little bit for you, but 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 single best piece of advice you've received from a mentor personally or professionally?
2: I would say... I'm paraphrasing, but be the best you that you can be, right? Like be authentic and recognize you don't, you're who you are. Be the best who you are as opposed to just modeling after.
1: Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, Omar Simmons, ExoTera Capital Management. Thank you again for uh, sacrificing your time and and sharing your wisdom and experience with us. We really appreciate you for being willing to, to be on Access in the Pipeline. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Accessing the Pipeline. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Ruben Pouchet III at rpusha at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.